bet a lot of you don't know that we have uh, someone who translates our services into Spanish uh, live while we're doing them so that people in-house, those that are Hispanic, can uh, worship with us and then also hear the sermon if they would like in Spanish. And so we have someone doing that right now. And since I'm off of my script, uh, she's having to work hard to know what I'm going to say next. But uh, I, uh, having just returned from the uh, 14 days out west and uh, seeing another part of our great country and the, uh, the different peoples and representations of peoples from around the world, uh, this is an incredible country to live in. And it is, a, it is incredible in many ways, but uh, the one thing that I found missing out west was the church. We could drive by communities and look for a steeple and could not find one. To look for some evidence of an evangelical witness and could not find one. And uh, I, I can tell you, we, we had a great time, but I missed worship at Sherwood. And I missed being uh, here to hear our choir and to participate in worship with you because there's just really no place like home and there's no place like Sherwood uh, for worship. I'm just prejudiced. I can be. I'm the pastor. So, uh, but uh, we are glad to be home. I, I don't know if you watched, uh, it wasn't a debate last night, it was a forum hosted by Rick White. Now, where else in the world, we can gripe about America, where else in the world can the pastor of a Southern Baptist church host the two presidential candidates and ask them tough questions, but in America? <laughs> Call the Russians and see if they get that opportunity. Call Iran and see if they get that opportunity. Or Pakistan. You know, sometimes we can be the biggest gripers about the world in which we live, and the reality is we are the most blessed people on the planet. And with that blessing comes a great responsibility. But uh, I was interested in the, in the forum last night because it wasn't a debate. The other one couldn't hear what the other one was saying, and they, all had, they both had to answer the same questions. I mean, it was a comparison of apples to apples and oranges to oranges. And uh, there was no, no spin, and it was asking some uncomfortable questions. And regardless of which candidate anybody might support, one thing you know, you know clearly what that person had to answer about that question. You know the exact same question and how the other person answered it. I thought it was very interesting, the question about the three people that you would seek out for counsel. Uh, Barack Obama mentioned his mother, his grandmother, and... Uh, Somebody else, I forgot. His, his, his wife. His wife and his grandmother and somebody. There was somebody else. Uh, and then John McCain mentioned David Petraeus uh, from a military standpoint. He mentioned uh, John Lewis, who's an African-American leader in the civil rights movement during the 60s. And he mentioned uh, the lady who is the head of eBay from the financial realm. I was sitting there thinking, what would I do if I were asked the three people if I were to be president of the United States, by the way, I'm not announcing my candidacy. <laughs> Just want to make that clear right here. Uh, I, I got a good job, and, and I don't, I'm not interested in, I'm really not interested in Katie Couric telling me what I need to think. Uh, so I just, I, I like my job. 
and I thought about three people. You know, who are the three people that you would want advice from in your administration? Well, really, you can name more than that. All of us could. But when you think about the three people, who are the three people you would go to if you were up against a wall? If you needed somebody to give you wisdom and somebody to give you counsel, who are the three people that you would go to? Well, we're in a series called Biography. And obviously, if we could talk to some of these people, we would. I, if I was a leader and I could talk to another leader, I would like to talk to somebody like Moses. I mean, how do you lead a nation of ill-equipped, beaten-down former slaves to become a great nation for God? There's some interesting things to learn from Moses. I would like to learn from someone like Elijah who learned to stand up to a king who could have taken his head off. Obviously, Jesus is an easy answer, and that's the answer that all Christians give because we want to give Jesus. But, but I, I'm asking you, who would you talk to? Who would you seek counsel from? One I know I would seek counsel from is Tom Eliff. Uh, I'd seek counsel from Tom Eliff because he's a wise man. And he's a brilliant man, but he's also a great man of prayer. Not just these two, but there are two laymen in this church, John Dees and Ron Dormany, that I would seek counsel from because they have been on my prayer team since almost the year I came. And we meet together every week when I'm in town, and they have supported me, encouraged me, prayed for me. I can remember one time when I was venting with them, and I said, you know, I think I'm just going to do, and I, I was, you know, being in my profit mode, and I'm going to be large and in charge, and I'm going to do that. And, and I think it was John Dees that said, you know, you could do that. I wouldn't advise it, but you could. Now, I'll pray for you. <laughs> and right then I knew I could do that. That'd be stupid. He didn't tell me I was stupid. He just told me, I'll pray for you. I need that kind of advice from people. I'd go to Jim McBride. I'd ask Jim McBride his wisdom. There are people that I would look to for advice. I'd go to my wife, not because Barack Obama said it and because it is politically correct to say your wife, but I'd go to my wife because my wife knows me best and she knows my motives best and she knows when to rein me in when I need to be reined in a little bit and get off my high horse. But I want to tell you why I would go to Moses. I would go to Moses because of all the leaders in the Bible, I see more in Moses in the Old Testament, Paul in the New Testament, about prayer and intercession than in any other leader. There are great prayers of Moses. There are great references to Moses and his interceding on behalf of his people. And I think if we want to learn how to be a great leader, whether it's a leader in your home, a leader in your business, a leader in your family, or a leader in the church, then we need to learn how to be leaders on our knees. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. I want you to look at the development of this leader. And Moses' life is really divided up into three equal parts. The book of Hebrews mentions Abraham three times, but he mentions Moses four times. Moses is a great leader. Now, remember the first four years, he's been picked up in a basket of reeds. He's been raised in Pharaoh's house. He's been raised in the home of Pharaoh. Acts 7.22 tells us he was raised in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. 
So here's a man who is literate, he is informed, he's a philosopher, he's a thinker, he's a strategist. He has been trained in the house of Pharaoh to be a statesman and a soldier. He is a man with a great mind. He has been given all the things possible to make him a great leader. Not only that, remember being raised in the house of Pharaoh, he would have known the magician's tricks to impersonate acts of the gods and signs from the gods, which he would use later on when he comes back. By the way, historians tell us it was not necessarily the firstborn son of Pharaoh who would become the next Pharaoh. It was sometimes and often the oldest daughter who would lead or the son of the oldest daughter. So in reality, according to the book of Hebrews chapter 11 and according to Josephus, it is very likely that Moses, although not an Egyptian, but he was raised in the house of Pharaoh, could have become the Pharaoh of Egypt. He could have become the leader in all of Egypt. He, he was, uh, in his second 40 years, not so good. He killed an Egyptian. He fled from Egypt. He went to Midian. He married Sephora and had a father-in-law named Jethro who was a very wise man and a very wise counselor to him in a time when he was trying to take on too much responsibility. But remember now, the second 40 years, here's something he learns. He learns strategy. He learns being a soldier. He learns being a leader in his first 40 years. In the second 40 years, he learns how to be a guide. He learns where the water is. He learns where the pastures are. He learns how to get around in that wilderness that he doesn't know yet, but he is going to have to lead a million plus people around for 40 years. It would help to have a leader who knows the terrain, a guide who knows the environment and where to go to find the needs met. And so during that time, he's discovering sources of water. He's discovering places where the animals can be fed. Hebrews eleven twenty four 24 says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for a reward. Now in Hebrews chapter 11, there are four verbs that are the key to understanding why Moses was the kind of leader that he was and why we remember him even today, not just because ABC shows the Ten Commandments every year around Easter, which I have yet to figure out what the Ten Commandments has to do with Easter. It's just the closest that the pagan world can come to a religious movie that they think fits Easter, which shows that the pagans know nothing about what Easter is all about except that it is the fulfillment of the law in Jesus Christ. But chasing that rabbit, I'm through. Look at these four verbs. First of all, considering. Considering, verse 26. It's an accounting term. What Moses did when he was deciding the direction of his life, when he was deciding to choose to be identified with God's people rather than to be identified with the Egyptians and with the house of Pharaoh, he reckoned. 
he considered. It means to weigh this against that and come to a decision. He reckoned it. He considered it. He weighed the pros and cons of the situation. It wasn't a rash judgment. It wasn't an emotional judgment. It was a weighted decision. So the first verb is he considered. Secondly, and the third one, he refused and there was a choosing, verses 24 and 25. He refused to do something and he chose to do something else. He refused to identify himself any longer with the house of Pharaoh, and he chose to identify himself with his people who were the slaves. He was a man who made a life-changing no decision. I've always told people that the reason that God gave us the English alphabet is so he could put N and O together in the alphabet because left to ourselves, we don't know how to say it. So when we learn the alphabet, we learn the word no before we learn any other word. If you don't believe that, Watch a baby. The first word they will say is not daddy or mama. It'll be no. <laughs> no. Here, honey, eat this. No. No. Come to, come to grandma. No. No. They shake their head. Even when they can't say it, they shake their head no. You ever talk to anybody that shakes their head no while they're saying yes things to you? That's so confusing to me. <laughs> I am totally for that person. I am, I am behind them 100%, you know. By the way, Hillary Clinton does that, uh, but that's another story. <laughs> you watch tapes. Every time she says something positive, she's shaking her head no. That's body language is communicating what she's really thinking. Watch the tape. I'm not against Hillary Clinton. I'm not a Hillary basher. God knows to put up with what she's put up with. She deserves a break. <laughs> I'm just telling you, her body language says no, while her head and her mouth are trying to say yes, but that's, so he refused and he chose. Why are y'all getting me off on this stuff today? <laughs> he left Egypt, verse 27. He left the luxury, he left the fame, he left the potential for leadership, he left all the things that were his to claim. But look at what he got because he left Egypt. Because he left Egypt, he got a greater reward. He got to see the glory of God. Then the third 40 years, he is a leader and a lawgiver. He's a leader and a lawgiver. He is leading God's people out of the wilderness. Now let's look at the desert times, and I want you to turn to Exodus 3. Exodus chapter 3, and we'll look at Exodus 3 and 4 for the next few moments. Exodus chapter 3. The desert times were times when God was testing him and refining him. God was pruning him and preparing him for the work that he had for him. He might have gotten all kinds of degrees in Egypt, but as one preacher used to say, when, when Moses went to, eat, went to the desert, he got the B-N degree, the B-nothing degree. He had to become nothing so that through him, God could become everything. Exodus chapter 3, verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. 
Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Isn't it interesting? As the son of Pharaoh, as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, as a privileged person, he was never mentioned to be ashamed to hide his face from Pharaoh, who is the great leader and the great king. But when he met God, the God of your father and of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, he hid his face. Moses understood real power when he saw it. Moses understood real authority when he saw it. And he hid his face. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters. For I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, which was, by the way, the land that God had promised Abraham. Verse 10, Therefore come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh. Now that's when he really got Moses' attention. I've come to deliver. Oh, Moses sitting there said, Boy, that's good, man. It's about time. 40 years. You know, I tried killing one Egyptian at a time, but I couldn't live long enough to accomplish that feat. But now God's come down, and I'm going to send you. And then Moses starts making excuses. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, certainly I will be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall worship God at this mountain. God said to Moses, verse 14, I am who I am. Moses said, who am I? God said, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now look at chapter 4. Then Moses said, what, what, what if they don't believe me and listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. Verse 10, then Moses said to the Lord, please, Lord, I, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Moses said, you know, I, I, have, a, I, I have a stuttering problem. Great, you're 80 years old, first time we've heard about it. Did you just get that? Is this just an excuse? Are you trying to pass the buck? You turned aside. I saw that you turned aside. I set that book on, bush on fire for a reason. Now, I'm sending you. Quit making excuses, verse 13. But he said, please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will, just as long as it's not me. Send it by whomever you will. Of course, you know, in, in this story... He says, how about my brother Aaron? Aaron's a good talker. And then when they get to Egypt, he never lets Aaron say anything. You ever notice that? I mean, he says, you know, maybe Aaron can handle this problem. And then Aaron never says anything. Moses does all the talking. Moses is the one who goes and confronts Pharaoh. He, he's making excuses. He, he is learning some lessons here that God is looking for available people. He's looking for people who are paying attention to what's going on around them. He's looking for people who are paying attention to what's going on on the horizon, who will turn aside and look and see, what has that got to do 
with my life? And what does that have to do with what God's trying to say? And what does that have to do with God's plan for my life? I'm going to turn aside and see what it is that God is doing. Moses turned aside. God is looking for people who may feel like God doesn't know where they are, doesn't care where they are, but he's looking for people who will turn aside and say, God, have you got something to say to me? Do you have something you want to communicate to me? Is there something that you want to show me? Here's a man who has humbled himself and been humbled by being a shepherd, by guiding sheep in a wilderness. And now he's put in a position for some defining moments in his life. Now, we don't have time to go through all of them. Let's just list them, and then I want to pick out two in particular. First of all, he confronted Pharaoh with God's demands. He confronted Pharaoh with God's demands. Here's a guy who's been gone for 40 years. He's out of the national limelight. He's out of the spotlight. And all of a sudden, he shows up with nothing more than shepherd's clothes and a staff in his hand. And he says, Pharaoh, let God's people go. He confronts Pharaoh with God's demands. Secondly, he faces impossible situations. He faces impossible situations. Here's a leader who has learned enough to depend on God that when he faces an impossible situation, he turns to God in that impossible situation. He's got the Red Sea in front of him. He's got Pharaoh's army coming in behind him. There's no way out. He's trapped. He's boxed in. His army doesn't have any equipment. They're not trained and here comes the most highly trained army at that point in history, headed down his back, seeking to destroy him. He faced impossible situations. That was a defining moment. By the way, when you and I face impossible situations, those are always defining moments for us because there are moments that define whether or not we will trust God in that moment or we will panic and act on our own in that moment. Thirdly, the pillar of cloud and fire. He saw the presence of God in the pillar of cloud and fire and as God's protection and as God's defense and as God's guiding of the people through the land. Moses knew, I'm leading them, but somebody is leading me. I may be the one out front that they can see, but I'm moving when the pillar of cloud moves and I'm moving when the pillar of fire moves and I'm not moving until it moves. He learned some defining lessons at that time. He was the giver of the law. Can you imagine being on Mount Sinai and suddenly God shows up and begins to chisel in that rock the Ten Commandments by which every moral nation and every moral system of law and judgment has been founded? Everyone in the history of humanity has been founded on the moral laws given in the Ten Commandments. Everyone. We get away from that, we get in trouble. Number five, he saw the glory of God. He didn't see all the glory of God, he just saw the backside of the glory of God because if he'd seen it all, it would have killed him. But he saw the glory of God. Here's a man that God could trust with law and with glory. Here's a man that God could trust with leadership, a man that God could trust to lead his people in an orderly way and could entrust him with the backside of the glory of God, and Moses wouldn't get puffed up about it. 
How much of God can be revealed to us lest we get puffed up about how much of God has been revealed to us and proud of our spirituality? It was a humbling experience for him. Then there was manna from heaven and water from the rock, unexplainable interventions of God. How God could send manna from heaven and how God could send water from a rock were unexplainable. What Moses saw in those defining moments was that God is able to meet us at the point of our need. Paul said it in Philippians. He's able to meet us, supply, deliver all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And so we learn something about God's ability to provide. And then number seven, dealing with rebellious people. Dealing with rebellious people who resisted leadership at the slightest inconvenience or test. I mean, he never, you have never met anybody that had a, a more negative group of people to try to lead in your life. Pleading with God for deliverance. Pleading with God to set them free. And then when God does, they gripe about everything God's doing. They gripe about the food he provides. They gripe because there's no water. They want to go back to Egypt and eat garlic. Boy, that'd be a crowd you'd want to hang around with in a closed room. We just want to eat garlic and onions. Wow. Moses owns the patent on breath mints. Did you know that? He should have. You're going to hang around with that crowd and they come complaining to you all the time. I'm sure in his office he had a little spearmint. Every time they'd come and gripe, he'd say, here, just put one of these in your mouth while you're talking to me. Leading these rebellious people, but there are two things that stand out. Hudson Taylor said this, there are three phases in the great task undertaken for God. Impossible, difficult, and done. Three phases in any great task undertaken for God. Impossible, difficult, and done. But I want you to look at two particular tests. And sometimes we don't look at these as tests. I believe they were. Exodus chapter 32. Turn to Exodus chapter 32 and verse 7. Exodus 32 and verse 7. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. Go down at once for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. And they have quickly turned aside to the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, This is our God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now let me alone that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them, and I will make you a great nation. God says, let me just wipe out the whole bunch and I'll start over with you. By the way, Moses would have known that he'd already done that once with Noah. So it was possible for God to do that again. He'd already wiped out the world with the flood, with Noah. And so this is a test of ambition. What kind of leader does Moses want to be? Is he ambitious? Is he seeking a title? Is he seeking fame or fortune? Or does he really want to be God's kind of leader? It's a test of ambition. Moses, 
Let's just forget all of these folks. I'll just wipe them out. They're an obstinate people. I'm tired of dealing with them, and I'll start over with you. And a lesser leader would have said, God, you know what? I've been listening to them since the day we left Egypt, and I'm sick of them too. Let's sign the contract. Let's start over with me because it's got to be better than this. A lesser leader would have taken the offer. And don't think that God didn't make that offer flippantly or casually. God was ready to wipe out an entire people and begin again with Moses. A lesser leader would have said, you know, I don't even like these people. I'm tired of them. Every time I turn my back, they're getting in trouble. They gripe about the food. They gripe about the water. They gripe about everything. You got a deal, God. Let's go down that path. Now, the second test that I think is often forgotten is in Exodus 33. Exodus 33. Now, Moses, verse 7, used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And it came about whenever Moses went out to the tent that the people would arise and stand each at the entrance of his tent and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. They knew what Moses was going to do. Moses was going to pray for them. Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship each at the entrance of his tent. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. This is the test and the response to the test of selfish ambition. This is the test of selfless intercession. Moses wasn't interceding for himself because Moses wasn't the one in trouble. Moses was interceding for his people because his people were in trouble with God. Here's a man who has selfless intercession. In fact, there's a similar prayer, Paul, in the book of Romans when he prays for Israel. And Moses prays and actually says, Lord, you can write me out of the book, but don't take these people out. You can kill me, but don't kill them. You cannot read the life of Moses without seeing how selfless he had become, how sacrificial his spirit was. He was a man who learned to pray for people that quite honestly didn't deserve the time. Now think about it. You would have quit that job and gone to another company. You would have walked out on those people because you'd have gotten sick of them. You would have fired them. You would have gotten rid of them. You would have moved away from them. Not Moses. Moses set up a tent where he could go and meet with God. And in that tent, he prayed for people that had done nothing but gripe about him for 40 years. They just griped. They griped to God about their circumstances. They griped to Moses about their circumstances. And there are some lessons here on intercession that we need to learn before we leave today. These came out of Tom Ellis' book, Praying for Others. And I learned so much when I first read that book back in the 1970s. And I want to pull about four things out of that 
to end up this message, to talk about how you and I pray for people. Now listen, sometimes people that don't deserve it, sometimes people that don't want it, and sometimes people that don't appreciate it. But you still have a call to be an intercessor on their behalf. First thing, establish the right purpose. Establish the right purpose. Why are you praying? Exodus 33, 32 and verse 30. Establish the right purpose. Exodus 32, 30. You yourself have committed a great sin, and now I am going up to the Lord, and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. That word atonement means to cover an offense. Moses is saying, I'm going to go up and talk to God, and perhaps I can, in talking to God, get him to cover, to atone for your offense, to forgive your offense, to look beyond your offense. Moses was pleading with God to cover the sins of Israel. God was at the end. He said, I've run out of patience with them. I'm tired of dealing with them. Let's just start over. And he says, I'm going to go talk to God and see if God might relent on that. Tom Ellis says that the purpose of intercession is seeking to secure the grace of God for an individual or individuals so that fellowship with God and usefulness for, with God, for God will be established or maintained. So the first thing he did is he established the right purpose. Second thing he did is he addressed the problem, verse 31. This people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Now let me tell you, intercession does not cover up the facts. It doesn't make excuses. It doesn't try to gloss things over. Moses didn't go before God and say, well, you know, God, there are people that have done worse things than your people have. You should really jump on them before you start jumping on us. He said, they have committed a great, a horrendous, a horrific sin. They have sinned the sin of idolatry. They put another God up ahead of you and called it you. They have made a calf and they are worshiping the creature of a calf instead of the creator. They have sinned. I'm not denying they've sinned. He, he addresses the problem. If you want to intercede for somebody, be specific. Be specific. Don't say, well, Lord, you know, they've, they've just got problems. Name them. Name the problems. They're unfaithful to their spouse. They have a problem with lust. They have a problem with pornography. They have a problem with profanity. They have a problem with alcohol. They have a problem. Name the sin. If you're going to go and ask God to cover it, tell God what needs to be covered. Because they may not be naming it. They may be making excuses for it or coming up with other names for it that make it sound less sinful. Call it what it is. That's what Moses did. He called their sin a great sin. We don't like to talk about sin in our culture today because sin sounds so bad. It is. It's what nailed Jesus to the cross was sin. And so he names it. Then he presents a plea, verse 32. But now, if you will 
forgive their sin, that great sin that they have sinned, and if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. Now there's a selfless intercessor. I want you to see three things here. First of all, he was still seeking the mind of God. He was still seeking the mind of God, if you will. Moses had no guarantee that God was going to change on what his plan was. Lord, if you will, if it's your will, if it would come under your sovereign will, would you do this? He's still seeking the mind of God. In intercession, you don't always know what the mind of God is for that person. You don't always know what the will of God is. That's why you got to pray until you can sense what the will of God is for that person. Secondly, he asked God to deal with the problem, not the symptom. He asked God to deal with the problem, not the symptom. We can say, well, somebody's problem is anger, or somebody's problem is, you know, envy, or somebody's problem is alcohol, or somebody's problem is a thousand other things that you can name. The problem is sin, and it's a sin nature inside of us that is so corrupt that it can't be retuned. It has to get an overhaul. God has to change us from the inside out. So he asked God to deal with the problem, not the symptom. He didn't say, Lord, you know that golden calf. He said, no, they've made a God. That's a great sin. Thirdly, he positioned himself between God and the people. He positioned himself between God and the people. He said, Lord, if you can't do this, if you won't do this, then blot my name out because, God, I'm ready to die for my people. Maybe that's why you can't talk about the law of God without the grace of God because here's a man who delivered the law of God, but he exhibited the grace of God when he said, I will die in their place if I have to. Blot me out. Don't blot them out. You see, intercession becomes true intercession when you and I are willing to take what somebody else deserves. Fourthly, secure a promise. Verse 15. Then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the earth? The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Prayer is not wrestling with God's reluctance. It is laying hold of God's willingness. Our God longs for intimate relationship with us. And when we intercede and we secure a promise, then, then God sees something in us and he moves on our behalf. You see, there is something that man does toward God, and then there's something that God does toward man. And God is moving on our behalf. There's, there's a song that says, if your presence doesn't go with us, Lord, we don't want to leave this place. Here's what Moses said. Moses said, God, it's not good enough for you to send us to Canaan 
led by an angel from heaven and drop us off and leave us there. If that's the best we're going to get, just let me die here. If your presence is not going to go with us, what's going to distinguish us? If that's the best we're going to get, then we don't want to go any further. I don't want to go any further. That was claiming a promise because God had promised them a land that God would lead them into the land. And all he is doing is reminding God of his promise. You said that we would go back to the land. You told us to bring Joseph's bones with us when we came. And we did. And I will not stop here. We're going to go on. And when God saw his heart, God continued to move. Did God change his mind? Well, you can debate that. King James says God repented. Well, God doesn't repent because he doesn't have anything to repent of. But God reveals himself to, to us in language we can understand. Here's what I think it means. I think there are some things that God will not do in your life, in your family, in this church, in this nation, unless we become intercessors. Until we start praying for other people and their needs more than ourselves and our own needs. Until we get other-centered and God-focused. There are just some things that God's not going to do. God has chosen to limit himself in the realm of prayer to certain things that he will not do unless his people pray. So the choice is ours. Whether we're young or old, whether we're a dad or a single, whether we're a young person or a senior adult, whoever we are, we are leaders because we have influence. So the choice is ours. Will we lead on our knees or will we lead in our flesh? Will we lead by trying to figure out what the best thing to do by the best psychology book we read last week? Or will we get on our knees before God and say, God, if you don't go with us, we don't want to go anywhere. If we can't go with you, we're not going. If you can't go with us, we're not going. God, it's us together or it's nothing. Can you claim those kind of promises? Can you state yourself in that kind of position? Can you put yourself in a position of intercession for somebody you love, somebody you care about, some situation that you're concerned about to the point where you say, God, even if it costs me my life, I want to see you answer this prayer. That's the kind of leader we need. How about in your home? How about mine? How about where you work? With the people that you have a hard time working with? How about in this country that is in desperate need for leadership? Just one final thought. If believers don't intercede, then this country will get the kind of leaders we deserve. And sometimes we'll get what we think we want and find out that's not what we wanted.
Why should God give us godly leaders in politics, in our local community, when we never bother to pray for those who are already in authority in politics and in our local community? Why should God give us better leaders in Albany if we're not praying for the leaders we've got? Why should God give us better congressmen if we're not praying for the congressmen we've got? Why should God give us a different president if we're not praying for the one we have? Why should God call young men to lay down their lives at 19 and 20 and 21 years of age for the freedom of this country when we don't even bother to pray for them? Ladies and gentlemen, this country must be led by the church on its knees. Judgment begins at the house of God. Would you stand with me in prayer, please? I want to ask you this morning by a show of hands. Nobody's looking around. Nobody's eyeing what everybody else is doing. I just want to ask you by a show of hands. How many of you have a situation at your work, in your life, in your family, that you know you have not been the kind of intercessor you need to be? You have not prayed the way that you need to pray about that situation. You've worried about it. You've talked about it. You've thought about it. You've been anxious about it, but you've not prayed about it the way you need to pray about it. How many of you have a situation like that? Would you just raise your hand? There's a situation going on in your life all over this room. There are hands all over this room. Now, folks, today your heads are bowed. You can put your hands down. Your heads are bowed. Today I've given you principles on how to pray and intercede for other people, and for desperate situations. I want to encourage you. Your homework this week is to put into practice what you've heard this morning. To take what you've learned this morning with you and to simply begin to start with those principles that we talked about at the end of this message and start applying them in your prayer life. For this next week, my challenge to you is Don't pray one thing for yourself. Don't ask God to bless you, to help you, to meet your needs. Don't pray one thing for yourself, but to spend this week interceding for other people. Now, it may be others in your family. It may be work associates. It may be uh, something else. But that you spend this week concentrating your prayer life on intercession for other people. So that your prayer life is not this week, give me this, give me that, do this for me, do that for me. But your prayer life is, Lord, we need your presence, your power in this situation. There's been a great sin committed. There's a great issue here. And I need you to work in this situation. I need you to move heaven and earth if you have to. To bring about change in this situation. I stand between that situation and you, God, as a mediator and as an intercessor, asking you to do what cannot be explained. 
Lord, I want to sense your presence, and I want to know that your presence is in the middle of the situation that I'm presenting to you today. Now, your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. In a minute, we're going to be dismissed from this place. And when we are, to my right and to your left, David Smith will be standing there, and a couple of our counselors will be standing there. If you'd like to talk to somebody this morning about coming to Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, maybe you've been trying to fix your life yourself, and you need to come to Christ today and let Christ take control of your life, then I'm going to ask you to make your way just down here to the front, and you'll find David over here to the side. He's got a name badge on. He'll be right by the steps to my right and to your left. If you'd like to talk to somebody about joining this church and becoming a part of this church family, I want to encourage you to just make your way over there, my right, your left, whether you're in the back or the balcony or down front, wherever you might be, there's going to be an opportunity for you to have someone talk with you and pray with you today about either salvation or church membership. If you're here today and you needed to do something in your walk with God, you can do it right there where you are. You can call out to God and say, God, I want to be an intercessor. I want to be a prayer warrior. I want my prayer life to go up a notch. I want to quit just praying simple little easy prayers for me and start praying for others. Teach me how to pray for others. And a good place to start is to read the prayers of Moses and to read the prayers of Paul because they tell us how to pray for other people. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you that you've given us stories in the Bible that are clear. We can understand them if we're a child and yet we can't grasp the full extent of it if we're educated beyond our intelligence. Lord, from every end of the spectrum, we've heard the story of Moses. We know the story, but Lord, help us to pick up this characteristic of Moses' life, that he lived as an intercessor, that he pleaded on behalf of the people of God, that he met with you and that you spoke with him face to face like a man speaks to a friend. Lord God, all over this room, there were hands raised of people who know that there is something that they need to be praying about more specifically, more directly, more boldly. And I ask you, Father, to drive the truths of this morning deep into their hearts and minds. Don't let it slip away from them when they walk out of this room, but drive it in and, and, and this week in their prayer lives. Do something great. Give them a sense of your presence. May the pillar of the cloud of blessing surround them as they get alone and meet with you, as they hear from you, as they speak to you, and then as they listen for what you have to say. Lord, help us, young and old, men and women, singles and married, young people and children, to be leaders on our knees so that we can make a difference by intercession in the world in which we live and the lives which we touch. And God's people said,
Amen. Amen. Stephen's going to come. You be seated for just a